everybody. Welcome to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. Joining me, as always, from the tropical metropolis of Calgary, Alberta, my co-host, Tim Jensey. Tim, how's it going, sir? It's been going pretty good, and I can actually go outside now. Oh, yeah? How has the weather been in Calgary this week? Shorts weather, honestly. Really? It's finally warming up in Calgary, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we're open. Chelsea tells me every time never to say this, but it might be spring for real. That's true. That's true, Tim, because I swear, you're almost kind of like the Dan O'Toole of the Third Line Plug Sensecast. You'll be like, yep, it's officially, winter's officially over. Fucking snow is next week. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure if you could hear it over the microphone, but Chelsea groaned because I've doomed us to two more weeks of winter. God, you, you just had to do it, didn't you, Tim? You just had to jinx everybody in Calgary. Just had to do it to them. So Tim, I'm really excited to get be here today because today's episode is our top five greatest Ottawa Senators of the 2010s. Yeah, it's going to be a fun exercise and it just really makes you feel kind of old too, hey? It does, like, it does. I remember being 18 and going to see uh, the Senators play when they had just picked up Matt Cullen and uh, Andy Sutton. That's 10 years ago now, hey? I know, that's crazy. Well, the first time I saw the Sens, I was I was 18, and it was the second-to-last game Mike Fisher ever plays an Ottawa Senator. Yeah, your game's way more interesting than mine. Well, the funny thing is that if I, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, I think it was pretty close together. I think Fisher got traded to Nashville like a week and a half after I went to see them, and then they traded Brian Elliott. So it was one of, like, Brian Elliott's final starts in Ottawa, too. Right, yeah, 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 because that was the the 2011 fire sale. Yeah, that was a weird time, man, the 2011 season, where we really had no, no expectations. Yeah, and I think we'll probably get into the hay a bit more when we talk about the 2010s a bit more generally, but uh, that was a weird, that was an interesting season because... Uh, Brian Murray stripped the thing down, and the next season we're in the playoffs. I know. And like you said, right, like we're going to have a lot of stuff to talk about later in the episode when we get to that. So I really hope everybody out there has been doing their part to flatten on the curve and staying safe. I know you and I have been doing our part by staying home and trying to be productive. I know that you've been working. I've been trying to stay productive because I've not been working lately. So let's talk a little bit about our week because honestly – I was having a look at our listens from last week's episode. How did we get to 160 listens in one week, Tim? I think it's being wrong about The Office. Yeah, and you know what? I was wrong one time about The Office. The one time I ever mentioned The Office on the show, I got two people on social media going, it wasn't Brit Bill Hader that played Dwight, it was Rain Wilson. Now, in fact, think about it this way. You're like the Pat Seeloff of getting things wrong about The Office. In which way? You played one game, you got one goal. That's true, except Seeloff played two games and had two goals. I mean, I, I know what you generalized. Yeah, I, I, got, I got what you meant. But no, it was really funny, and like I was looking at social media, I'm like, I'm like, what, really? Was it? Because honestly, like I said, I've never really watched The Office, and in fairness... Bill Hader and Rain Wilson do do really much look alike, so it's not that hard to maybe confuse them if you're not super familiar with The Office. I'm not familiar with TV at all, so I'd fuck it up too. To be honest, well, I mean, I did screw it 
up. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way because, you know, since we've been doing this podcast, like, that's one of the main things I've been watching. I've been watching is just hockey. I don't really watch Netflix. I watch some stuff on YouTube every now and then, but honestly, it's just I'm watching the Sens games. Yeah, and I'm watching, yeah, the hockey or I'm watching my cartoons. Now, given that hockey hasn't been around him this past week, I actually got a chance to watch a few things on Netflix. One of the things that really I'm still kind of beside myself watching was the, I believe it was on Lifetime a few years ago, it was the Surviving R. Kelly miniseries. Because R. Kelly was a, for those who don't know, he was an R&B singer from like 20-some years ago. He had a few hits, and he's been... Beat on someone. Yeah, and of course everybody knows that Chappelle Show made the made the funny parody, uh, the Pee on You video, which is super funny. And that's the one thing about Chappelle Show. If you go back and watch that show in 2020, it's amazing. A couple things that are really amazing. Number one, they got away with a lot of things on that show. The race draft. The ra- okay, the race draft was funny though. That was different. Oh yeah, it was fucking amazing. I mean, Chappelle's uh, Tiger Woods impression. Fantastic. Oh, shizzle. Yeah, he's like, I always wanted to say this. For shizzle. (laughs) That was amazing. Another thing I always thought, and actually he was a part of this, was you go back and watch that show, some of the people on that show went on to actually have really good careers, like comedian Bill Burr, who's actually one of my all-time favorite comedians, and I've always said, because, like, I'm a pretty laid-back guy, but when I get angry, I don't... My outer exterior doesn't show it. My insert, my interior does, and my angry voice is Bill Burr, because he has that Boston accent. And when you hear him talk, he kind of, even when he's not angry, even when he's just serious, he kind of sounds half sarcastic and half angry always. Anyway, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, and another thing is that some of the parodies that they did on the show is so spot on like the p on you the r kelly thing and going back to the r kelly the surviving r kelly miniseries i was watching and like i always knew he was a bit of a pervert anyway because he had married Aaliyah when she was like 15 and you know the sex tape came out like almost 15 20 years ago so you always kind of knew you always heard about those allegations and then in like 20 15, 2016, in the last five to six years, a lot of allegations started coming up against him. And I think even last year, he finally got arrested for it. Yeah. And it's just one of the things that, yeah, you always heard about it, but uh, it's funny that a lot of stuff is just starting to stick to people now. Yeah, like look at Michael Jackson, right? Like we always heard all the allegations with him and kids. And it was like, there was always very split. People thought he did it. People thought he didn't. And then he dies. And then the... Uh, there was also another miniseries on Michael Jackson. It was like Finding, Except ne- Finding with Neverland. Except the Michael or it was. Jackson one, most of the stuff in that turned out to be made up or came from well-known, un- well-known sources that were kind of tossed out in court. So the Michael Jackson one doesn't hold up as well as, say, the R. Kelly one. But in fairness, it's very much in the same vein, right? Where it's a very popular African-American singer doing all these inappropriate things with kids. And while, like you're saying, the Michael Jackson stuff got thrown out of court, the R. Kelly stuff stuck with him. Oh, yeah, but Michael, well, we know Michael didn't do it. 
Allegedly. Well, okay, we don't know anything, but Michael Jackson probably didn't do it. Allegedly. Like, that, that's not my field of expertise to talk about it. But it was one of the things that, when I was watching that R. Kelly thing, and one of my coworkers had texted me about it. She's like, you know, listen, I just saw this on Netflix. I should check it out if you're interested. And it was one of the things I'm like, okay, I'll probably watch an episode. I'll probably get bored and turn it off. I binge-watched the whole thing in one night. And at the end of the, the miniseries, because they talked in the final couple episodes about this sex cult that he had in his home in Atlanta where... He, well, that was weird. He had, like, underaged to young females locked up in rooms in his house. And it's like, oh, God, this guy is sick. Yeah. And it's one of those things, like, I was never an R. Kelly fan. I didn't really like his music. Even in the song Ignition, never liked it. I thought, eh, it's whatever. And I was saying to one of my coworkers because... With the people I work with, we have a th- thread on Facebook where we BS, whatever, and we were talking about the miniseries, and I just threw it out there. I'm like, you know what? His song wasn't even the best one off the soundtrack to Space Jam. Oh, you mean, I Believe I Can Fly? Yeah, not even the best song off it. You know who had the best song on it? Quad CD DJs, Space Jam you, theme. You mean the one that gets remixed with everything? Yes. Yeah, like it's the one... yeah. Oh my god, it's fantastic. Like the one where... The mashup of the Space Jam theme with Duality by Slipknot. I think I'm still partial to uh, Quad City DJ's Cross Yes with Slam About. Okay, I gotta look this up now because you have you've got my attention now. I gotta check this one out, man. Because oh, that, that's like, something I would be really interested in. What's amazing is the whole meme behind the Quad City DJ's thing started in like the anime and video game community because. Uh, are you familiar familiar with RPG Maker at all? RPG Maker? Um, not personally, no. I've heard of it, but I'm not personally yeah. super familiar with it. So it's basically a de- basically a dev kit for amateurs to make role-playing games. Okay. And so back in the mid-2000s, someone made a game in RPG Maker 2003 that was a gritty reboot to Space Jam. Right. Uh, called... Uh, Charles Barkley shut up and slammed Gaiden about a post-apocalyptic world where Charles Barkley destroyed basketball with a chaos dunk and Michael Jordan was the snitch that turned everyone in and Anson Carter's an android and you and LeBron's son have to set everything right. You know what? I'm not super into RPGs, but just thinking about that makes me laugh. There's oh, just yeah. the overall ridiculousness of the whole thing. So someone made an 8-bit rendition of the Space Jam theme as the opening for that game. So people started just mashing up the Space Jam theme with everything. So if you look for Space Jam mashups, there's like... Most of it's like anime openings. Right. So yeah, there's a ton of them for anime openings that are just fantastic. I think Barkley Monogatari was my... Out of the anime ones, might have been my favorite. I think it, that was actually my alarm clock. <sighs> nice. Actually, I was <laughs> going to ask, did you ever play or see any footage of the, I think it was on the Sega Genesis, the Charles Barkley Shut Up and Jam, or Shut Up and Slam video game he had? No. It's not that great. No. No. Speaking of Space Jam, though, we're going to move away from the Surviving R. Kelly because, honestly, I can't really do it justice. It's just one of those things where... 
I was like, God, this guy's a pervert. And it's one of those things where I was, I was sucked in. I was fascinated by the whole thing, even though we always knew he was a bit of a pervert. Now, going, moving away from that and moving on to talking about Space Jam, because one, another thing I was watching on Netflix over the last couple of days, and I just watched the hour three and four of the documentary is The Last Dance on Netflix. It's about the 97-98 Chicago Bulls. And that season was the year where that was the last year of Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Rodman, Phil Jackson with the Bulls when they won their sixth title. And that year they allowed a camera crew to follow them the whole season. And it was one of these things, I can't remember if I mentioned it on the show or I talked with you about it off air, but it was one of those things where I was like, even though I'm not a super diehard basketball fan, I'm like, okay, I'm fascinated to learn about this because there were so many things that people have talked about those 90s Bulls teams and the animosity towards Jerry Krause, the GM, and Phil Jackson, and the clashing of personalities in the room. And it's like, okay, there needs to be either a 30 for 30 special or a documentary or something, and they finally did it. Really? Yeah, and it's on Netflix right now. Like I said, episodes three and four just came up today. I got a chance to watch it, and the one thing I... The one thing I gotta say about it, and I'm I really, really do enjoy it, and I think it's fantastic so far, is that I think for people going into this who maybe aren't super familiar with the Bulls and the everything that was going on at that time, I think it's a really good documentary for them to watch because they don't necessarily just talk about the 97-98 season. They also go way back to when they drafted Jordan and Phil Jackson came in and they got Pippen and Rodman and the lead-up. It was just basically the lead-up to 97-98. And I think they spent more time talking about that than that season so far. And you could take it one of two ways. You can take it as, okay, well, I thought this was a documentary on that season's Bulls, but also this is also a really good history lesson of everything that went on leading up to this. Yeah, and I think it's really important to get that sort of background. It's true. And the funny thing about that is that it's, you always heard about what Michael Jordan was like behind the scenes. You always heard like he was super competitive. He would push people to their breaking points. And it's weird when you watch it because there's like footage of him motherfucking his teammates on the court and it's, and he's cursing on the, in the show. And it's so weird to see that because, you know, Michael Jordan is the, one of the biggest athletes of all time and to see him giving his honest opinion on people and he's like there's no filter yeah it's, it's weird because it like, there's weird. this really cultivated image that I think a lot of kids growing up in the 90s saw of Michael Jordan of like like Space Jam Michael Jordan basically and then you get real Michael Jordan who's a notorious asshole yeah and it's funny like he was talking about other players in the NBA like they were talking about Isaiah Thomas who played for the Detroit Pistons and there was this whole thing in the 91 Eastern Conference Finals where the Bulls had swept the Pistons and with like seven seconds left to go, the Pistons just walked off the court, not even shaking the Bulls' hands. And that really rubbed Michael the, the wrong way. And in the documentary, he talked about that. And he says, you know what? You can show me whatever you want, but there's nothing they can say that he wasn't an asshole. Yeah. It's a shame because, like, apparently uh, during his Hall of Fame induction, Michael just used it to kind of beat down on the Pistons and stuff like that as well, so shitty stuff. 
It's true, but the one thing that I'm really surprised about, and it's it's obviously they weren't going to talk about because it it's not really related to the Bulls, was the 92 Dream Team. That was probably the one thing that I, I'm actually kind of surprised they didn't really talk about that a whole lot, if at all, in this documentary so far, because, like, Pippen played on that, and Jordan played on that, and they both made sure that Isaiah Thomas never made that team. But no, even, like I said, even if you're not a basketball fan... It's really, really fascinating to watch, I would say, the North American sports team of the 90s. The Bulls, and really, it's hard to argue that because when you really think of the teams in North America, the Big Four, in terms of teams of the 90s, one could, uh, one could argue the Atlanta Braves because they were coined the team in the 90s, even though they have like 14 division titles to one World Series, whereas the Bulls have six championships to how many division titles they have. Yeah, well, it's like the Dallas Cowboys being America's team. Yeah, exactly. Period. Exactly, and I mean, they won three out of four, so they would... That's a pretty, pretty close comparison to what the Bulls of the 90s were because they had that big dynasty of the 90s that everybody thinks of, but I think the problem is with the Cowboys they couldn't sustain that success in the late 90s. And that's when you saw the team fell apart and they didn't go back to the Super Bowl. Yeah, and then I think a lot of stuff gets pinned on Tony Romo. But I don't think it was just Tony Romo. No, and definitely after Aikman retired in 2000 or whatever it was, yeah, Romo took over and... Next time we get Ian Mendez on the show, and I know Ian's a big Cowboys fan, I want to ask Ian, as a Cowboys fan, do you, would he think Tony Romo would be the best quarterback in the franchise history if he had won a Super Bowl? Because he has the stats. If you go back and look at his stats, he has it all, but it's always the moments where he choked is where the fans always pin that on him. Yeah. Well, the other hard thing about Tony Romo is just you can tell that uh, the football IQ is phenomenal like listening to tony romo do color commentary is fantastic oh he's fantastic yeah exactly he's a fantastic football commentator and even with the handful of games that i've actually seen him cover like he can break down a play like nothing it's unbelievable how high his football iq is when you watch him break down a play like he would say you know the quarterback didn't throw it because this quarterback or this slot or whoever's covering them, there's no options there. They could have ran it, but, you know, there's the the line would have stopped him. Like, he could easily break that down as a quarterback. Whereas yeah, I like, don't, whereas he's Troy, probably doing shit like that on the line in real time under pressure. Exactly. And, you know, and it's such a, contra- a contrast to what Troy Aikman does. And Aikman, obviously, you know, won three out of the four with the Cowboys in the 90s. He can't break down those plays. If you really watch him and listen to what he says covering those games, yeah, he can, but he's not to the level Romo does it. No, and I'm not sure I've ever really seen a sportscaster quite like Tony Romo in that regard. But I think it, I'm not sure you can get something like that in hockey given the fluidity of the game. Exactly, and we've talked about this in the past, where, especially with the Senators, because we have Ray Ferraro and Jamie McLennan in between the benches, right? And obviously, they're both ex-NHLers. They both played. But you could definitely tell they have certain strengths to what they can talk about, right? 
Noodles is very good talking about the goaltending and maybe the defense because he was a goaltender. Ray Ferraro could do more for the up front because he was a forward, right? Mm. And it's one of the things about hockey that football, I think, is re- just the structure of the game is really good is uh, you do get, like, because it's stop, go, stop, go, more so than hockey's fluid nature, you do get that opportunity for a color commentator to really go to town on a play, and I think that's something that's very unique to football. True. You can also make the argument for baseball, too, because baseball also has that stop and start nature to the game as well. But then baseball, you don't have, you have only one team on really on the field at a time. Although you can start analyzing base play and that sort of stuff. Yeah, you can you can make an argument for, you know, the pitcher through it, high left corner in the strike zone, and maybe the batter isn't super comfortable hitting high, maybe he's more comfortable hitting low. You can make those kind of analysis with those kind of plays. Mm. But it's not to the same level as, okay, here's how the defense is adapting, the offense adapted this way, quarterback does this. Just there's so many more moving pieces in football. Well, there's also way more guys on the field in football. That's true, and both teams are also playing at the same time. Yeah, yeah. so it's... I think football's kind of a special sport in that regard. Because there isn't really anything like it. Even, like, uh, rugby is a lot more... It doesn't have that stop-start nature to it. So it doesn't lend itself to that kind of instant analysis that football does. No, a lot of those sports more or less rely on the eye test. So, Tim, I've been yabbering on about surviving <laughs> R. Kelly and The Last Dance. I never got a chance to ask. What have you been watching or been getting other to this week? Watching, it's... I've decided to clear up some of the anime stuff that I was watching and then forgot about and then finally got back to it. So, I've mostly been clearing out Fruits Basket and watching a, sh- a new show airing this season called Sing Me Yesterday. Yep. And they're mostly just rom- romantic drama sort of thing. Okay, how many years old is these shows, Tim? Fruits Basket is a remake. So it's based off an older manga. There was an anime made in the early 2000s that was really popular in North America. Right. And it was one of the first one of the first kind of romantic, romantic dramas to really be popular among anime fans in North America. So there's definitely a sweet spot in fans' hearts for it. I never watched the original, so when the remake came out, people were like, yeah, this is better than the original anime because their eyes aren't on the sides of their heads sort of thing. I was like, okay, I'll watch this, and it's really good. So basically the premise of Fruits Basket is uh, there's this family called the Somas, and they're kind of a rich family, but they keep to themselves because it turns out that 12 members of the Soma family are possessed by spirits of the Zodiac, and if they're touched by someone of the opposite sex, they turn into the animal. So it's really awkward for them. Hmm. And uh, the main character is this girl whose mother recently passed away, and she doesn't want to burden her grandparents, so she lives in a tent in the woods. Three of the members of the Soma family take her in, and romantic shenanigans happen from there. Good show. Uh, The other one I'm watching right now is uh, called Sing Me Yesterday, and it's uh, based off a manga that ran for over a decade in Shonen Jump, but this is the first time that it's it's being adapted. And the premise is it's basically uh, the main character is this guy who he recently finished college, but he couldn't find a job. So he's working at 7-Eleven in a town, kind of a suburb, exurb of Tokyo. And just him kind of figuring out where he's going. 
Okay. So for somebody like myself who doesn't watch anime, what kind of differences from, say, an animation or a writing standpoint is different than, say, a more action-packed anime? Um, so it really depends on who the show's aimed at. So uh, Sing Me Yesterday is aimed at older audiences, while uh, Fruits Basket is aimed at younger people. So Sing Me Yesterday is very slow. So it really focuses on its characters and how they interact. While uh, Fruits Basket, it's a bit more about comedy, but it still builds very charming characters. So like a more action-packed anime like Dragon Ball, obviously they're punching each other. And it's really focused on the fights and the powers and that sort of stuff. While these sort of shows, they don't really have that. So animation-wise, would the more family-friendly show be more colorful, whereas the other is more... <laughs> What's the term I want to use here? It depends on the show. Dep- just depends on the show? Okay. Yeah, so, like, it's kind of funny. There was a there was this show that was aimed at older women, for for example, called that was really good, called Polar Bear Cafe, and it's very pastel colors, but it's about animals just chatting. It's a really cool show, but it has a very light color palette. But yeah, a lot of the shows that are aimed at younger guys, like uh, My Hero Academia, Dragon Ball, do tend to use very bright color palettes. Uh, some of the moodier shows, for uh, blanking on the show's name, but it was fairly popular. If you, oh, Attack on Titan, that's fairly popular with younger people, but it's a mo- it uses a moodier color palette because it is kind of edgier. Yeah, well, a lot of shows that are kind of sillier use like you'll see more pastel colors or very bright colors. Uh, it really depends on what sort of mood the artist is trying to go for and what sort of art style the artist has as well. Okay. So if it's very, if they have a very soft art style, you can see more pastel colors. Uh, if they have a hard, a harder art style, you'll often see very bright or very subdued colors, depending what they're going or kind of like darker colors, depending what they're going for. So like if you remember Yu-Gi-Oh, uh, the art style was super, super angular and to kind of make it pop more, they used very solid colors, solid bright colors. Solid. Yeah. So, so, Tim, before we head into break, I think we should talk a little bit about, because over the last week or so, there's been a lot of talk about sports teams now looking to open up their training facilities in states where the laws are getting a little more lax regarding this COVID-19. So do you want to talk a little bit about that before we head into break? Uh, sure, but it's a... Uh... It's really hard to follow just because it's changing by the day. Yeah, because I, I read a little something about that, and apparently the NBA had proposed that to the teams, and from what I was reading, it seemed like they were getting a bit of pushback regarding this idea. Yeah, because I think one of the things that's going to be tough for the teams is just moving all the players. Uh, and I guess it's like, but it's going to happen anyway. Maybe it's, like, there's a lot of concern, a lot of moving pieces, and just getting something to work in short order is uh, very difficult. And it's actually one of the things that I'm kind of impressed that the NHL draft will go on, even if it's virtual, with the playoffs certainly not done. Mm-hmm. Because I know the one thing with the NFL, and the NFL just did their draft last week, is that they did it virtually. And I think that, and honestly, I know the NHL has been following that very, very closely as it pertains to their upcoming draft because it looks like that's probably the route that they're going to go as well. Yeah. Well, it's like the NHL isn't a stranger to remote drafts. They used to do the draft by phone. 
I think the hard thing for the NHL is uh, they just need to cross the T's and fig- dot the I's and figure out, okay, if we're going to do the draft before the season's over, how do we go about it? Exactly, and it also really pertains also with the draft lottery too, right? Is yeah. that, okay, well, what the teams that are in the playoffs right now, do we continue with the playoffs and do we do it in a neutral site? Because I know the NBA has proposed that too, and they propose that Las Vegas would be a neutral site for NBA games. But I know that some people are still very... They're still not willing to do that because of the uncertainty around the coronavirus, right? Yeah, this is where things get pretty dicey. Is Obviously, the lockdown can't last forever, or you're going to see some really bad economic effects. Yeah, and I love... And I know sports are definitely a luxury, but I think you can probably figure out, one, how to do find a way to do sports, even have people in a stadium and maintain social distance. Like, one way you can do it is sell the stadium to a third capacity. You could do that, but how would you enforce people to stay distant in their seats? Do you... Do you, you court do, them off. Yeah, do you, I was going to say, do you court s- certain seats off in sections? Yeah, pretty much. You, uh, like, once you get an idea of your, t- your season ticket holders, then you start coordinating things off. And it'd basically be micro-tarps. That's one way they could go. The other thing is, is if you don't want people lining up for drinks, you only sell drinks and food by someone walking the aisles. So you remove that point of, that place of line, and then the bathroom's going to be the hard part. Yeah, that's probably where I'm going to see the big problems of it. And there is one idea, and this is actually more for myself. I know the NHL is not going to go this way out. But say with the teams that are in the playoffs, you know, and you're seeing with pro athletes playing, say they're either NBA Live or NHL 20 or doing whatever with the video games, maybe an idea is that they could do – it's kind of stupid, but there could be – you could use – one of the video games to say do a playoff with right it's not never going to happen it's a kind of a dumb idea but it could be a very interesting thing to look at mm-hmm. well another thing you could do is if you want to simulate being there is you could set up a bunch of cameras in the arena and basically stream the game on twitch or something and have the chat allow noise make like some sort of cheering and stuff yeah, you to could at least definitely. simulate a crowd being there. That you, could be an option. You could do that. However, I like I said, I don't know if the fans or the teams would go for it because say you have a team that they win a Stanley Cup. Like, we'll say, I don't know who's in the playoffs right now, but say Tampa Bay, for example. Say Tampa Bay wins the Stanley Cup this year using NHL 20. Okay, does, oh, yeah. Now, no, put a giant asterisk on that. Exactly. Right? Like, okay, is this now valid? Because you guys didn't play in it. Your virtual cells played in it, but you didn't. So there is going to be an asterisk next to it. But I guess the, the one thing is uh, what we're seeing from uh, coronavirus, like as we get data about who's dying, who's getting hospitalized, it's probably safe for the NHL players to play. Because most of the people who are getting very sick and 
and pretty much all the people who are dying are of advanced age and have a comorbidity. In the NHL, I don't think there's many of, there's definitely not a lot of very old people, and the amount of comorbidities is very low. True, but you also got to factor in, what about the players who, instead of staying in North America, what about the ones that went home to, say, Sweden, or went home to Russia, or whatever country they're from, right? Well, you announce what you're doing three weeks before, so they have time to get back, if they wish, and quarantine. Or even, or, or even if these countries are going to allow them to fly. Yeah, that's that'd be the interesting one. Although I, I imagine like some of the European countries are even starting to relax. Like I think, I think it's Czechoslovak, sorry, Czech Republic has they really beat down the curve, so they're starting to relax a bit. Uh, Sweden, Sweden is they haven't really restricted anything at all, so I, Sweden probably is not a problem for players to come back. True, uh, so. but what about countries that surround, say, Belarus? Because Belarus's COVID rate has been pretty high since it started. I apologize to the Belarusian NHLers in the playoffs, but... Well, the other thing, though, is if they quarantine for a few a week or two before they come and play, they'll be fine. Like, that's the thing, is if they're allowed to fly in and we work with quarantines, then that's probably not a problem. And it's not like these guys are going to die from COVID anyway. No, but you do run that risk when you get into large groups like that, regardless of your age or if you're an athlete or not. I mean, I highly doubt that the super chats of the NHL are going to die from something that's mostly killing people with comorbidities. Fair enough. So, Tim, with that being said, we're going to head on to a break, and we're going to return to talk about the top five greatest Ottawa Senators of the 2010s. Coming right back. Hey, this is Jamie McLennan from TSN, and you're listening to the Third Line Plug Sendscast. Okay, we are back. Now, Tim, given that we were talking about the proposed things with the NHL, you actually brought up a pretty good idea as soon as we stopped recording. Do you want to bring that up, bring up your idea? pretty simplistic but maybe just extend the face visor down yeah either do that or have a full a full bubble full bubble case. yeah yeah because i've been seeing like going to restaurants they have the full face masks on and the cashiers the safeway have it as well true and also but also they're behind fucking plexiglass too yeah maybe we just need to cube in the timekeeper a bit more <laughs> I was going to say, when you see that at a store, do you ever feel the urge to body check somebody into it? Uh, Chelsea would murder me. Look, I'm not saying, look, I'm not saying you have to body check her into it, but... She's the only one within six feet of me. What if she did it to you, though? Yeah, that'd be kind of fun. So, Tim, let's start talking about the top five greatest Ottawa Senators for the 2010s. Now... Let's talk a little bit about the 2010s as a whole for the Ottawa Senators because, you know, coming into the 2010s, I really think the fans knew that this was going to be a kind of a rough go for a couple of years given that, you know, the Haiti of the Senators from 2007 had ended. We were coming into a new era with the young guys coming up. Alex Ald. Alex Ald, exactly. And it's funny, for a decade that started off with you're an expert and ended with we're a team, Overall, how do you look back on the 2010s for the Ottawa Senators? As far as the 2010s, it's just such a 
year decade because it's really a quick retooling at the beginning of the decade and then you had the we're here we're not here for a few years and the major successes of the decades were really just three months you had the win over montreal in 2013 and then the run to the conference finals in 2017 like it's almost like all those all the coaching changes all the are we here are we not are we going to blow her up it was pretty much I think in the eyes of a lot of fans, made worth it in just those three months. I would agree. And I think another thing, when when I look back on the 2010s, a lot of the successes I look at for the Ottawa Senators were more for the players, not for the team itself. And especially with the players that they brought in, like they made the trade for Craig Anderson. Like how many, would you have ever imagined nine years ago when we made that trade, that Craig Anderson would still be with the Ottawa Senators today. No, and I don't think I would have imagined that Craig Anderson would have been probably the best goalie in Senators history. Yeah, you have Anderson coming in, you have Carlson turning into a a once-in-a-generation talent, you had the 2017 playoff run, but you also had these little moments in between, like you had Clark MacArthur coming back in 2017, you had... Daniel Offerson's final goal in 2013. You have all these little moments that I think fans can look back on the individual moments and think that was amazing, but I don't think they're going to look back on the decade as a whole and think, wow, this was great, given that when you look back at the 2000s as comparison. Yeah, I think it's rough, but I think one of the things that I think escapes a lot of us is when you think back up to 2017, it was actually wasn't a bad time to be a Suns fan. It wasn't, because you saw the team that, when we missed the playoffs in 2011, you saw the young guns and the young guys really starting to make their mark on the team. That's when you saw the Pajos, the Mark Stones, the Hoffmans, the Carlsons. Turris came in, Anderson came in. You saw this team start formulating, and it really all came together in 2017 for that, what, six weeks or whatever it was that run in the spring, which I think a lot of fans will look back on as the moment of the decade only to it to be followed up with the complete and utter collapse of the senators Yeah, in, in the fall. That's really well put. And you know, there's very few team experiences that I think I'd trade for being a sense fan. Like the success that like the black ops and, the Blackhawks, the Penguins, and the LA Kings saw, sorry, the Kings and the Bruins saw were really kind of the most, the only real sustained success. Cause like looking in the Atlantic, no other team really su- sustained a ton of success in that period other than the Senators and arguably the Canadians. But even the Canadians fought, never really strung much together. And I would argue the Canadians were about as successful as the Senators without the emotional high points of Andy shutout or Bobby Ryan coming back or Clark McCarthy coming back. Yeah. Or even Carlson coming back from his Achilles injury in 2013. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it's like in the 2010s that Montreal Canadians made it to the conference finals twice. I don't think it was anywhere near as dramatic, like outside of maybe Halak coming in and saving the season. I'm not sure it was anywhere near as dramatic as what the senders went through. No, because the Senators, I think because you had the number of years, you had 2012, you had 2013, you had 2015, 
and 2010 where you looked at this team and thinking like they're an okay team maybe they might win a couple of playoff games maybe a playoff series but they never legitimately saw us as, as a cup contender 2017 was the anomaly because we were the Cinderella team honestly when I was going in that I didn't know if we were going to beat Boston I, I knew as soon as we played the Rangers we were going to beat them and then you go up against the Penguins and I thought we're completely dead we're not going to win we, and then game seven overtime. I know the biggest, the heartbreak of heartbreaks. I'll tell you that wasn't you know, two thousand seven. Yeah. And it's like I can't remember. I think the only times that were as good as this for Sens fans were like two thousand five, two thousand six, two thousand seven. And yeah, as I was saying, I don't think I trade those experiences for the world because just on top of the hockey success, the just all the emotional stories that happened to the Senators were fantastic. Like, like in the 2017 season when, uh, like that was around when Bobby Ryan's mother passed and then he just comes and dominates the playoffs. Like, like that's an awesome story. Clark MacArthur coming back and being one of the most productive forwards for the Senators is amazing. Anderson's run that year was just incredible. I agree. But the problem with those moments, when we think of, like like you're saying, Ryan coming back, MacArthur coming back, Anderson coming back, is that there's the flip side of that coin where you saw the team completely fall apart at all of the drama with, you know, Ubergate, Melnick out, the Carlson Hoffman. Hoffman situation, Jonathan Petrie. You had all these negative stories about the Ottawa Senators that came out following 2017, and I think... It'll take a couple of years until when this rebuild is officially done and we're a playoff team again. I think that we're going to look back on that time, that 15 to 18 months or whatever it was, and thinking, yeah, it may have been super dark then, but look where we ended up now. Well, look where we ended up now because the last few years have been hard, but it's like taking the decade as a whole... I think it's still a good one for Sens fans, and compared to a lot of other franchises, I think we had a pretty good run. Yeah. Like, look at what Leafs fans have had to put up with this decade. I know, and at least we can say that we beat the Bruins once in the playoffs. Yeah, or even just... The Rangers were an odd team that decade as well, or San Jose's kind of fall off. Yeah, you, like, yeah, you definitely have the Rangers and the Sharks where... They were contenders, but they never really, outside of 2014 and 2016 when they made the finals, really they were teams that you were always really wondering, are they going to take that next step to get to the finals? Yeah. And it's interesting because, like, I think the league as a whole in the 2010s was a story of four teams. Oh, no question. But you know, but, I, but here's the thing: the nice thing about the dark times of 2018, 2019 is that now that we're in 2020, and even though we're in the COVID pandemic, we can look forward to the next ten years of sunshine and brightness in our future. Yeah, because I have faith in Pierre Dorian putting the finishing touches on right, and who knows, maybe maybe we'll have some Pittsburgh luck. Maybe. With that being said, Tim, let's talk about let's talk about some honorable mentions. And I'm gonna let you start off by talking about your honorable mentions because I know I wouldn't necessarily agree with 
putting him on that list and maybe in the top five, but talk a little bit about who you have in your honorable mentions. Yeah, so it's it was kind of hard to pick five, honestly. Now that, like, when I really sat down and thought about it, but there's some really interesting players that I thought that they're around the cusp, but definitely deserve to be mentioned. And I think the first one is Mark Mathot. And Mark Mathot was definitely known as a stabilizing presence that really helped Eric Carlson do what he did. He wasn't a flashy guy, but you knew that when Carlson could just go up the ice, Mark Mathot could clean it up. Yeah, he was kind of like a Chris Phillips, almost in a way, because Phillips always was like that for the Senators and their young D players. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was an odd trade that brought Mathot to Ottawa, and famously he left during the expansion draft and was replaced by <laughs> Johnny Oduya. But while Mark Mathot was here, he was a great stabilizing presence on the back end, and I'm not sure... 2016-2017 goes as well for the Senators without Mark Mathot. No, but the nice thing about the Mathot trade is that both the Senators and Blue Jackets got something really good out of those deals because we got a guy who was a stabilizing force for Carlson and the Blue Jackets got a captain in Nick Foligno. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those trades where it's, yeah, both teams got some got what they needed out of it. Because, yeah, Columbus has an embarrassment of riches on the back end and always kind of did. Yeah, they got kind of their heart and soul leader, which Ottawa, they had a decent amount of because Carlson, sorry, Carlson, Alfredson was still with the team at that point. I would agree. So who else do you have on your honorable mentions, Tim? The alley-oop goal is definitely kind of etched in my brain and I'm not going to lie. Mike Hoffman, although he never breached 30 goals with the Senators, he potted some absolute monster goals, and it's hard to think of the Senators without Hoffman on the wing in the 2010s. Well, especially around the center of the 2010s. And the same goes for Mark Stone. Now, Mark Stone is not, like, he's probably one of the smartest wingers to play the game. Not the fastest guy, but he's always in the, he was always in the right position, and was always able to strip a puck the Senators were always better when Mark Stone was on the ice. You know what, Tim? I was going to say, I think you're going to get some criticism for putting Stone on the honorable mentions because I know when we asked, remember when we asked Brandon Mackey about who the greatest Senator was that wasn't Alfie or Carlson? He put Mark Stone on that list. And I think a lot of fans will look at Mark Stone that way given that he was developing, he was a great player, we trade him to Vegas, and he continues that. It wasn't like a guy who was at the end of his career and he kind of flamed out. And Hoffman's kind of the same way because, as we said when he was our cover athlete, he always wanted you, leaving you wanting a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the thing with Stone is, and for my top five, a lot of it's just going to be, when I think of players of the 2010s, I'm thinking of heroics. So you can already see kind of the players on my you can kind of foreshadow the players on my list. Mm-hmm. And for Mark Stone, he is a phenomenal player and probably one of the most talented Ottawa has. But it's hard to think of, there's like not really a clutch moment that really jumps to mind immediately. Well, and as much as I'm I, I don't know about head, that. I mean, there's one off the top of mind, but I'll mention that when we get to uh, yeah, yeah. the list itself. But like, 
for as far as ascenders go in the 2010s, there are definitely defining moments, and it's hard to think of compared to some of the other defining moments. Like Stone's contributions are far and away the top, and I'd say he's probably the most one of the most skilled wingers the Senators have ever had, other than maybe Alfredson. But I don't think he's a defining player for the 2010s. Okay. It's a weird argument, I know. But I think for this list, as much as I appreciate stats and that sort of thing, you got to go for the big clutch performances. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. So, Tim, I'm going to go ahead and talk about my honorable mentions because for my list, I kind of had to factor in a lot of things. I had to factor in stats, their importance to the Senators, memorable moments, and a few other things that I also factored into. So I'm going to talk about my honorable mentions because there's a couple of guys on here that I really did debate whether I should put them in the top five or put them in the discussion for top five. I'm going to start off with a guy that I don't think a lot of people would immediately think of for a top five list, possibly an honorable mention, is Milan McCulloch. Because you've got to realize, Milan McCulloch, when he came to Ottawa, he came into a situation where he was taking over for a fucking superstar in Danny Healy. And he did give us a, some very memorable moments. There's a couple off the top of my head. There was the backhand goal over Lundqvist in 2012. One of my favorite, actually, and I think it's a moment that has really gone on or kind of gotten forgotten over the years is in the 2013 playoffs versus Pittsburgh where he picked where I think he got a pass from who did uh, Andre Benoit and he just went straight down Main Street and scored oh that was brilliant that was st- I jumped up in the air I was so happy when he scored and there was a goal versus Washington where after he scored he took his glove off and he spun his finger around like he was mimicking a goal light oh yeah like that's the thing with Milan McCulloch because the skill was definitely there Dude was always injured. Exactly. And he was, when he was healthy, he was productive. However, this is a guy that I really did debate whether I should put him in the top five, but looking back at his numbers, like, I just couldn't justify putting him in the top five. But the one note I will close out with when talking about him is that at the time of this recording, he is the last Ottawa Senator to score 30 goals when he had, when he played at 35 in 2011-2012. Which is just so weird to think about. My next player on my honorable mention, and I think if he had stayed with the Senators, there's a very, very, very good argument he could have been in the top three. Mika Zibanejad. Now, I'll be the first to admit, I was never a diehard Zibanejad fan when he played for us. I always thought of him as a really good centerman. I don't know what it was. Like, he was a good player, but I was just never, not that big, not that really a fan like, he wasn't somebody I'm going to go out and buy his jersey. I kind of think of him, like, the way I did with a Kyle Turris. Like, I thought him as a very good centerman. Not one of my all-time favorites players on the team, mind you. Nothing against the guy. Talented. But just not a guy I would easily point out. And I, this is a guy that is probably the most recent player I could pit in the Senators' what-if. And the what-if is, what if he didn't get dealt to the Rangers or Derek Broussard? Because he did develop into a superstar in 2018-2019. And now, he's teammates with Artem Panarin. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where I never understood this Benajad trade. I understood it at the time because I know that they were looking for a guy 
very, very short-sighted in retrospect, and even at the time, was that they were looking for a guy at center who was more all-around solid. And that was the thing about Zabinijad. Like, he was very talented, but you know defensively, he didn't necessarily have that. He didn't really concentrate on the defense. I think that's why they looked at Derek Broussard, because Broussard brought a more well-round, or all-around player to the Senators for that 2017 run. Mm-hmm. Although it's, it's weird how that trade just immediately turned around. And the thing is, Zabinijad was always good at keeping the puck kind of where it needed to be, so... It's one of those things where I guess we're always kind of like, is he going to do it this year? Is he not sort of thing? But in retrospect, we traded a 23-year-old. I think we were just too impatient. Exactly. And looking back at his stats, I mean, he potted back-to-back 20-goal seasons. And statistically-wise, he was getting better every season that he played. I think in his final season, he had 60 points or something, if I'm not mistaken. Somebody somebody could probably correct me on social media about that. I don't have the stats in front of me, but you can tell. Like, stats-wise, he was getting better and better and better every year. Gets traded to New York. Then he's playing with whoever, right? And he's putting up points. Well, his first year, he didn't exactly light the world up, but it wasn't until 18, 19. And then, of course, he gets Panarin last year. And now he's like, oh, Christ, New York's got a superstar centerman in their team. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, it's like, even in his first season with New York, 37 points in 56 games. That's still an improvement. So it's like, the Zibanejad trade was rough. And I guess it's like, I guess we did, like, the guy was playing in Ottawa. He played 42 games in Ottawa when he was 19. So it's like, we were watching a young guy. He's definitely a guy I wish could have stuck around. But at the same time, I I really wonder what would have happened. Like, would he have developed in Ottawa? But I guess he was developing in Ottawa, so he probably would have. True, but you also got to factor in, would the Senators have kept him in, say, 2018, 2019, when his contract finally came up? Well, I mean, if the team fell apart the same way with Zibetichat on it, probably not. So the next player I'm going to put on my honorable mentions, and much like Milan McCulloch, this is the guy of... All four of the players I put in my this is the one that I really went back and forth whether I should have him in the top five or as an honorable mention, Jason Spezza. His numbers did dip following the departure of Danny Healy in 2009. However, the one thing I can say about Spezza's time in Ottawa in the 2010s is that there was it was a different Spezza we were seeing because Spezza, I personally feel, looking back, he went out and tried to prove he could produce without Danny Healy. And he did that as he potted 84 points in 2011-2012. The one thing I... The one really weird thing, when I look back on this time in Ottawa 2010s, is that one year that he was captain, and I remember it was a look that nobody really looks back on fondly today, as it just seemed odd having him as captain, given that we had 13 years of Daniel Offerson as captain. And there was even times in 2013-2014 where we were thinking, well... Is Spezza really the right guy to put the C on? Because we had Eric Carlson as well in the system. Yeah, and it was a it was weird because Spezza played only five games in the 2013 season. Sorry, the 2012-2013 season. So it was a guy who, I believe that was the lockout shortened season. So it was a bit odd to see, oh, a guy's not, he was pretty absent the year before and now he's got the C. 
But at the same time, it's I think Jason Spets is a guy that the fans kind of drove out of town. They did. And, like, even on the downswing of his career, he's getting 60 points in Dallas the three years, like, the two years after. And it's interesting that, yeah, he had a bit of a dip in production uh, after he left, but he was still at almost a point-a-game pace. Because you have to remember those, like, those late, in the late aughts, he he was suffering those back and wrist injuries, if I remember correctly. So he was only playing, like, 60-game seasons. Yeah, off the top of my head, I think that's what he was suffering from. So it's... I think a lot of stuff got pinned on Spezza that really shouldn't have. True, and we were and you were talking about that the fans drove him out of town. When he was a free agent last summer, the fans were really pushing for the Senators to bring Spezza back, and I always kind of look at that saying, maybe the fans saying that, maybe that was their way of mending that bridge with Spezza. Yeah. Although, it, it is sad seeing him in Meet Belief Blue. Breaks my heart, man. <laughs> so the fourth guy that I have on my honorable mention, and you know what, Tim? I'm not going to lie, I haven't said this for a while. Hudson Bacho! Yes, the fourth man on my list, Thomas Shabbat. And I know this is one that you were not super cool with. I was, you were like, oh, come on. He, you couldn't have legit put him on a list. And I totally agree. Like I said, the sample size was too small to justify putting him on the list as he only played two seasons. However, at the time of this recording, he did put up his best numbers in 1819 with 55 points. And let's be honest, in 10 years, if we're still doing this podcast, if we're doing a top five sense players of the 2020s, he could easily be number one on that list. Oh, yeah, no, I think Shabbat will probably be the Ottawa center of the 2020s, other than maybe Alexis Lafreniere crossing my fingers. Or Byfield. Uh, or Detroit. But I don't think he's played enough games in the 20... I don't really consider him like a 2020... Sorry, like a 2010s Ottawa centers player, because, yeah, it's two seasons. It's true, but it's not like he was playing parts of two seasons. He played two full seasons in Ottawa mm-hmm. during that time. And I guess the hard thing is, is it also kind of sucks that a lot of the sludge, and he was playing through kind of the sludgy years. So, Tim, with that being said, let's go and talk about our top five greatest senators of the decade. Now, we're going to start off with you at number five. So, Tim... Who do you have to start off the list? Uh, I was talking about kind of big stories, big moments, and we have to start off with Clark MacArthur. Clark MacArthur didn't spend a lot of time in Ottawa, and unfortunately he missed a lot of time due to injury. But when he came back, he was dynamite during those playoffs, including potting the goal to put Boston away. And when you think of just the hardship that the Senators team went through and kind of the, like the skill and role players that the Senators had. Clark MacArthur is that player. Like uh, this is a Clark MacArthur was always a play, a player that analytics types loved because shots were being created when he was on the ice and weren't being created and sorry, shots on shots were going at the opposing goalie and not at our goalie when Clark MacArthur was on the ice. 
and it was a really nice pickup in 2013-2014, and definitely a player that maybe the late Maple Leafs wanted to keep around, but I digress. Just seeing him come back from basically two years of concussion, uh, post-concussion syndrome and playing his heart out in the Boston series and getting two massive goals, including the goal to put it away, is, I think, a quintessential moment of the 20... The twenty twenty, sorry, the twenty ten Senders fan experience. Clark McCarthy is an interesting guy because I was thinking of putting him in my honorable mentions, but I think for myself, the really the big thing for me is that was I putting him in the honorable mentions because he was truly one of the great Sens of the decade, or am I putting him on that list because he was one of my favorites? And I'll be the first to admit, like, I love Kurt MacArthur in the same way in last year's Sense team. Like, I love watching Connor Brown. Connor Brown is basically Clark MacArthur all over again, except he's healthy and not concussed. Mm-hmm. So, I'm a little, I, so I'm, I am a little surprised you put him at number five, given that, you know, stats-wise, he didn't put up eye-catching numbers. But I think the other intangibles, we were talking about big moments and his importance to the team, I can... I can justify you putting him on the list, but overall, I just, I don't really necessarily see him as a top five player for the decade. I think it's the story attached to Clark MacArthur is really what does it. And it doesn't help that he also had a 55-point season in his first year as a senator. So it's like, the points were good enough, and the story makes him almost, like, the story's almost legendary at this point. Like, if it wasn't for him coming back from almost two years of concussion and putting Boston away. Yeah, I would agree with you. That he'd be an honorable mention at best for being a good heart and soul player, good intangibles, great, great advanced stats and pretty good numbers. But I think kind of like the high point of the decade was where Clark MacArthur shined. And from a fan experience and what we're going to look back on the 20, 2010s as that's what we're going to see. So Tim, I'm going to go into talk about my number five pick. This was a player that when I think of the, my top five list, I think this is the pick easily will be widely debated, especially with his character questions and how his tenure with the senators ended at number five is Mike Hoffman. Like I said, this is one that I was thinking of every reason to not put him on the top five list. But when I really look back on his time as a senator, and I went through the stats, and I thought about his importance to the team, and everything as a whole, I could not argue to not put him in the top five. And stats-wise, I couldn't argue about it because he finished in top five in team scoring every full season he played with Ottawa. He was the top-scoring Sens forward in 16-17. Throughout his tenure, he was one of the top offensive guys. Three three seasons of 30-plus assists, scored 20 or more goals every season. And I think the reason I'm putting him on here also is because he was a low-round draft pick in 2019, draft 130th overall. There were a few knocks on him. And, of course, the questions of his character is one of them. But another knock is he was not great defensively. His play was streaky, and 
as I've said in the past, he was a player that left you wanting more offensively, and he, as was shown with his 70-point season with Florida. Yeah. Although, counterpoint, the alley-oop goal. That's true. Yeah, the alley-oop goal was great. The goal in Game 6 versus Pittsburgh was great. Like, Hoffman has the moments, too. So, like, from a narrative side, it, but that's the hard thing because it's also what kind of kills Mike Hoffman because of how he left Tampa. Exactly, and I did factor that in when I was thinking of reasons to not put him on top five because when I really look back on it, nowadays I tend to not think of the alley-oop goal, the goal in game six, the big moments he had. I think of how his tenure ended. Because not only did we lose him, we lost Carlson as well in the process. Yeah, and that's the rough thing. And uh, as much as I like Hoffman as a player, it's hard to watch a guy just kind of go out in those things. And the, th- the other thing, though, is like, as much as Hoffman never had, like, Hoff- Hoffman finally got his uh, 30-point season in Florida, the guy could, f- like, when the guy got his chances, he finished. And the Ottawa Senators are starting to get more players like that with Anthony Duclair in the first half of the year, Brady Kachuk. So it's, I wonder if we're going to look back and remember Mike Hoffman. That is true. Or is he going to be a guy that when you really look over the number of years of the Ottawa Senators, he gets lost in the shuffle? Yeah, it's all, I wonder if Mike Hoffman will be Milan McCulloch. A guy you remember, he was, you remember about him, then you're like, wait, he was good, and he has these moments, sort of thing. Exactly. At number four on my list is a player that, when we talk about the Sens of the 2010s and their restoration projects, like Anthony DeClaire and Vlasov Domestikov being the most recent, the first restoration project of the decade was my number four player, and that was Kyle Turris. Because I think back on it, when Turris arrived in Ottawa in 2011, he was a high draft choice whose confidence was lost after the Coyotes rushed him into the NHL. Year after year, he slowly regained his confidence as the Senators did something very smart. They eased him into a role and let him develop into a top-line center after Jason Spezza left. Turris became the number one center in 2014-2015, right up until he was traded to Nashville in November 2017, he did finish in the top three in scoring for all but one season and was the leading scorer of the Lock of Shore in 2013 season, which I actually forgot. He was the leading scorer of that year, but Turris is a guy that, for me, he had everything that I had the curriculum about, kind of minus the big moments. Like, there's maybe one or two moments I can kind of think about Kyle Turris, but overall, if you were to tell me what was the signature moment of his time in Ottawa, I'd be like, I I couldn't really have told you, to be honest with you. I think the signature moment for Kyle Turris, again, it's 2017 when he uh, scores a game-winning goal, scores a game-winning goal in game five against the Rangers, and then drives to the Condors and makes it in time for their, makes it in time for dinner. That would be the Kyle Tur- Turris moment. Which is funny because when I was thinking of Turris, that's a moment I actually had forgotten about. 
Because when I think of game-winning goals, I think of the one in 2012 where he tied the series, again, against the New York Rangers. Yeah, I forgot about that goal, but that was crazy. Yeah. So, Tim, i got to ask the question. At number three, who do you have on your list? What about my number four? Oh, sorry, you're right. <laughs> I know, sorry, it's... Sorry, I know, that's on me, that's my bad. It's... Sorry, for... For ever since Alfredson left, kind of one of the big names and one of the highest played players on the team was Bobby Ryan. And there's always been kind of questions about will Bobby Ryan live up to the contract? Although the answer probably at this point is sadly no. Bobby Ryan had some clutch moments, especially in that 2017 playoffs where he scored the overtime winner against in Game 2 in Boston where all of a sudden... I think Sens fans were like, okay, we can do this. And he scores the, the winner in game one against Pittsburgh. And a goal that he can only describe as, I never outspeed anyone. Well, that's not true. The only time I can think he outsped someone was against David Langwong, I think in 2011 during the playoffs. Or it was 2011 or 2012, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, well, game one, again, he flat out beats Phil Kessel. And gets a beautiful look on, on Flurry and gets nothing but net. So I'm not going to lie. This is a pick that I think a lot of people are going to disagree with because, as I've said in the past, he was a lightning rod for contra- criticism during his career. And I'm just looking at his stats right now. And he put up decent numbers. But again, I think because he did sign that big contract that will always be the dark cloud over Bobby Ryan Oh yeah. when you look back on it. Because I'm looking at his stats, like, in his first season, he put up 48 points, back-to-back 50, had 25, 33, and 42, and then what he had this year. He's a, he's a guy that, solid player, but I think with the expectation of Bobby Ryan being that, okay, we were supposed to get a guy who scores... 30 goals every season and we never got that i think that's really where a lot of people listening to this is going to totally disagree with that oh yeah but for those six weeks damn was it a good time to be bobby ryan that's true so tim even though i skipped over your number four which i apologize for who do you have in number three when you think ottawa senders and you think clutch what name comes up Pajot. It's Pajot. The man scored four goals in a game. His first game as a sender in a playoff game scores a hat trick, then scores four goals against the New York Rangers to tie up and then seal a game. Incredible. Like, the man is clutch, and he was fantastic at both ends of the ice. I would agree with that, and I know that Pajot's a guy who... If we were basing this solely on stats, Pajot would not have been on this list. They would have picked Mark Stone over him any day of the week. And I do agree, he is definitely in the top three Sens players when you think of his overall importance. Because you look back on his career and you think of a guy, nothing came easy to Pajot. And that was the funny thing about him is that nothing came easy to him. He worked his tail off. He made the NHL. And when he got to a point where he's now a solidified NHLer, we made the move to move on from him and get the draft picks. 
Yeah, and that's the thing is like Pajot was he's a local guy and he did absolutely everything the Sens ever asked him for. Like if they needed a shutdown guy, he was there. They needed a guy to step up into the kind of higher up in the lineup, he could do it. Like he he could give you uh, two or three points an hour of game if you asked him to do it. And then on top of that, you get hat you get hat tricks in four point games in the most important of situations. The guy is clutch, and when you, th- I think he's someone that Sanders fans are not going to forget because just those massive moments. And I don't think it could be anyone other than JG Pajol. And we also can't forget that during the Hamburger run, there was a few games there where he elevated his game and came up clutch for Ottawa as well. Especially that, I think it was the one game versus Boston where us and the Bruins were fighting for that final playoff spot. And it was like, there was like three or four goals in like two and a half minutes or whatever. And Pacho, I think had two of them. Yeah. It's whenever you needed something big, you got it from Pacho. And I think the senators are going to miss that. But I think the senators are going to bring it so like there's a lot of clutch players coming in for the Senators. Well, I hope there's a lot of clutch coming in for the Senators. <laughs> That's true. Only time can tell about that, though. Exactly. So, at number three for myself, and this is a spot where I kind of have to go with two players because. Well, oh, that's cheating. It's not cheating because we didn't put any rules on that. Oh, come on. Everyone knows what a top five list is. Hear me out, okay? You don't get six players. Hear me out on this one, because this will totally make sense. Think about it. Both of these players, when you really think about it, they had the same kind of career narrative. Later round draft pick, had a knock on them during their junior career. Both worked their way to the NHL despite all the doubts and obstacles and became heart and soul players. At number three, I couldn't pick one or the other. Mark Stone and Jean-Gabriel Pagio. As I've said, if this was solely based on points, Stone would have won out, hands down, as he had four 60-point seasons for the Senators. But, looking back, both guys became heart and soul players. They're both players that elevated their game when the Senators needed it the most, as we were talking about Pagio's hat-trick versus Montreal 2014, his four-goal performance versus the Rangers in 2017, Stone potting the OT winner in a come-from-behind victory against the Penguins in 2015. And they both had their memorable moments during the 2015 hamburger run. And these are two guys that, following the departure of Eric Carlson, these were the two guys that fans wanted to become captain of the Senators. Yeah, and it's... Like, thinking about that point in particular, it's kind of weird to think that Pajot elevated his game so much that they almost had to trade him. Because Pajot's definitely a guy I would have loved to have retire as a sender. True, and same with Mark Stone, right? And Stone and Pajot are both guys who, as I've said, they both elevated their games, and they both developed to a point where the Senators did have to trade them in a rebuild. But when we look back on it now the centers have gotten a pretty decent return. And while I know fans would maybe argue that we could have gotten a lot more for Mark Stone other than Eric Branstrom, but in fairness, we have not seen Eric Branstrom fully develop into what he could be with the centers. And honestly, I, I think we're going to get something crazy good in Branstrom. So 
I'm excited. But part of me is thinking that just with Pajot, it's just it's the heart and soul, and it's the clutch level is just off the charts. Yep, and Mark Stone had his moments during the 2017 run too. Most notably, he scored the the first goal in Game Seven against the Penguins to break the scoreless tie. Because when watching that, fans were thinking, "Oh God, we're down two nothing. We're there's no way we're coming back from this." Then <laughs> Mark Stone scored that to put it, make it two one. Dzingel potted it to make it two two, and then you know, Chris Kunitz happened. I'm still mad at that penalty. I still hate Chris Kunis because you know what? Chris oh, Kunis, I, I, Kunis was not only on the 2017 Penguins that broke our hearts. He was on the 2007 Anaheim Ducks team too that also broke our hearts. I know. Bastard. But it, at the same time, it's also... I'm still mad at the, the Kessel dive. God damn. What a bum. What a bum. But, uh... You know what? We could probably go dueling, like, sneaking as we have been for the last two, two and one, but I think we have the same players in those slots. Yep. And at number two for both of our list, Tim, is Craig Anderson. Yeah, and it's... We were talking about this at the beginning of the show and said, like, at the beginning of the decade, would you have thought that Craig An- A, Craig Anderson would have been our goalie at the end of the decade, and B, been our the best goalie in Senator's history. And the guy is a walking legend, especially after coming back, like taking some time off to be with his wife as she beat cancer, then comes back and posts a 50 game, a 50 shot shutout. Yeah. And like, like well, the funny thing about Anderson, when we made that trade for him in 2011, he was seen as an upgrade over Brian Elliott. No, that was hands down. He was an upgrade. And I think, as I've said at the beginning of this episode, when we look back on the 2010s, this can easily be seen as one of the best trades ever made by the Ottawa Senators. Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, I think it was a trade that surprisingly worked for both teams as uh, Brian Elliott really needed a change of scenery as well. It's true, and I think the reason why... I can honestly say this is one of the best trades we've ever made is because Brian Elliott didn't last long in Colorado. Anderson did. But it's funny when I, when I look back on Craig Anderson's time with the Ottawa senators and you know me, I'm a wrestling fan. I think this is a kind of pretty good comparison. I view Anderson with the senators, the way I view Bret Hart with the WWF. He came in not the flashiest guy in the world, a consummate professional, fan favorite in the locker room, fan favorite with the fans, was a top guy for a while. Despite never being really viewed as the top guy, he was always seen as more of a placeholder. In the same way that Anderson was viewed as a placeholder until Robin Leonard was ready, or Ben Bishop was ready. You can look at Brad Hart as the same way when Razor Ramon, Shawn Michaels, Steve Austin, whoever was ready to take the belt from him. And they never came. Except but for, except for you know, Michaels and Austin did. But that's not the point. It's not wrestling. No. But looking back on his career, like, Anderson played 10 seasons for the Senators, became the winningest goaltender in franchise history, 202 regular season wins. And he's tied Patrick Oline 
first in playoff wins with 21. He won the Masterson in 2017. And in the 2013 lockout-shortened season, I kind of forgot about this. Like, he was an early favorite to win the Vesna that year, too. Yeah. Well, what's absolutely incredible about Craig Anderson is if you look at five-on-five situations for Craig Anderson, his save percentage when the Senators weren't down was elite. Like, he was up with some of the top players, like your Bishops and your Carey Prices. Like, when it got down and dirty, Craig Anderson was fantastic. Yeah, and it sucks that he was never seen as a guy that could win a Vesna or could win awards because when you look at the just the straight-up stats, he had the stats to back it up. It's not like he was a scrub. No, but the hard thing with the Vesna is if you're not... Like, if you don't make it deep, you're probably not getting the Vesna. And the other thing with Andy was there's always the narrative of good year Andy, bad year Andy. And you kind of see it. But I don't think it was as big of a thing as people made it out to be. No, but also... Well, the funny thing is that they didn't make a big deal of it. Because if you really looked at Craig Anderson's stats during those years... They really weren't all that bad. If he was putting up numbers like he was the last couple of years where he was a below 900, say, save percentage, okay, you can make that really a really good argument that, okay, that's a very fair assessment, that bad year, good year, Andy. And I'm going to bring up his stats here real quick. Say, for 2013-2014, yes, he had he was a three, three goals, uh, goals against, but... Here's his numbers. Like, he was a 9-1-1 save percentage. He was a 9-1-6 in 15-16. We missed the playoffs. But 17-18, and 9-0-3. On a team that was falling apart. Exactly. And the other thing, though, is like, even in some of the off years, it was like 0 0.91, 0.9, 0.916. Those are still respectable splits, especially when he's seeing almost 2,000 shots. Like, the years that are quote-unquote bad end years are years that the Senators decided, oh, running gun time, let's go, and faced an absolute... And even, like, in 20, 2009, 2010 in Colorado, when he posted a point nine one seven, he faced two th over 2,200 shots. Like, no goalie's going to look good at that. No, even if you have, say, Patrick War or Martin Brodeur and goal for that. Yeah, so it's like, for the defense, a lot of the defenses that Anderson was giving, the man, the man was phenomenal. I can't say anything better than that, Tim. Yeah, it's like, I think, like, in 2016-2017, he saved 15, almost 16 goals above expected. And somehow he's not, he didn't even get Vesnia votes. Like, that's absurd. So, Tim, with all that being said, it's time to go on to the number one pick. You and I both have him at number one of the top five greatest Ottawa Senators. At number one, Eric Carlson. This is an absolute no-brainer that Eric was going to be number one. Well, think of all these huge, like the big moments we were talking about of all the other players. Like the overtime Clark MacArthur goal, sprung by Carlson. The Hoffman alley-oop. Sprung by Carlson. The Stone OT goal versus the Pens in 2015. 
Carlson set him up. I believe Carlson was on the ice for pretty much all of Pajot's goals in the four-goal game. What about and, uh, the Derek Broussard game-time goal versus Boston? That yeah. was Eric Carlson. Or even the series winner against New York. Or the over-the-shoulder goal, where Carlson scores for below, shooting from below the blue line, and it doesn't hit off anything. It's just a clean, perfect shot. So I'm going to quickly run through some stats here about Eric. Back-to-back 20-goal seasons. As a defenseman, mind you, four seasons of 70-plus points with 82 points in 82 games and got snubbed for the fucking Norris Trophy in 2016. Never forgave you, Drew Doughty. You know who also never forgave? Guy Carbono. Third in team, regular season scoring with 518 points. Fourth in Senators playoff scoring, 45 points in 94 games. Norris Trophy winner in 2012 and 2015. Named captain in 2014. Carried the Ottawa Senators in the 2017 playoffs with 18 points in 19 games, despite having a broken foot. But the number one thing, when we look back on Eric Carlson, and this solidifies why he's at number one, the Senators didn't even make the finals in 2017. He got one vote for the Smythe Trophy. Does that or does that not solidify him right there? The Senators didn't make the Stanley Cup finals he got a vote for the playoff MVP. Yeah, it's it's insane. Because just the stuff he was doing in that 2017 playoffs, he was doing it on a broken foot. Like, that's incredible. You know, and as Tops is being the number one greatest Ottawa center of the 2010s, I'm going to say right now, no disrespect to Daniel Offertson, Eric Carlson's the greatest Ottawa center of all time. And if the decade that is the 2010s, there's a very good argument you can make. When you think of the top three best players of the decade, he's in that category for for top three. Uh, I would agree with you that he's probably one of the all-decade players, along with probably Sidney Crosby and Alex Ovechkin. I I know a lot of people would say he's definitely top five, but there's an argument that he was in the top three. The only thing he did not do during his career... In the 2010s? Is win the cup. Was win the cup. If he had won the cup, hands down, top three best player of the decade. Right there. Mm-hmm. Although at the same time, I think you would be hard-pressed to argue Carlson over Alfredson. Like, that's a tough argument. But here's the... I'm not saying it's without merit. I'm saying it's tough because of... Just think of the things Alfredson did, including the goal that pushed them over into the Stanley Cup playoffs. Sorry, the Stanley Cup finals. But here's the thing, Tim, is that we can obviously look back at Daniel Offerton's career, and he put up a lot of great, had a lot of great points, a lot of great moments. Eric Carlson, everything I just mentioned, he did that as a defenseman. And honestly, I think for myself, when we look at players... I always tend to think, did this guy do it as a forward or a defenseman? And I tend to think at higher if they were a defenseman. Like, I will say right now, if out of the top three greatest players of all time, or Lemieux Gretzky, I would say Orr is the greatest of all time. Note, and I would say forward be Mario, but Orr did everything those guys did as a defenseman. Eric Carlson did the exact same thing. 
He did everything the top players in the league did, but he was a defenseman. <clears throat> and that's why I'm saying he's the greatest Ottawa senator of all time. No disrespect, Alfie. No, but I think with Alfie, it's just that long, sustained period of just incredible leadership, plus an incredible playoff run in 2006-2007, and even strong playoff performances when Ottawa beat yeah, when Ottawa beat uh, Montreal in 2013. So it's like, it's really, Alfredson's resume as a senator is very hard to beat. I would like to close out right now, though, Tim, that as much as we were absolutely heartbroken, absolutely distraught, absolutely saddened to see Eric Carlson leave, we could be seeing the future in Alexei Lafreniere with that pick we got for him. For sure. And, like, that's the thing is just uh, going into the... It's funny because the decade almost closes like it opened. The Ottawa Senators move some pieces and rebuild. And that's kind of where the Senators opened the decade in 2010-2011. Although, we did the full rebuild this time. Yep. And while I don't see us making the playoffs in 2021... 21-22, I could see us making the playoffs then. I think we're due for a deep run in 2026-2027. That would be amazing. 20 years after the fact, and we end up winning a Stanley Cup then. <laughs> well, I mean, for some reason, the Senators' two deep runs are 2006-2007 and 2016-2017, so who the hell knows? Oh, it would be amazing. And also, we can't forget 96-97, the first year we made the playoffs, too. It's almost as if X6, X7 seasons are good for the Senators. Well, Tim, I guess that wraps up today's episode. Now, to close out, do you have anything you want to mention before we head off into the close for another night? Uh, not particularly. Uh, it's just crazy to think that probably one of the most turbulent decades the Senators have ever had game to a close although you know it's interesting because i wonder if like like the hoffman carlson i'm not sure if it's actually like a bigger drama bomb than the heat than heatly leaving but like that combined with the melnick stuff combined with Uber just game. the team falling apart it's all that together just made such a mock yeah and the think it all started with the passing of brian murray brian murray yeah so it's it's been a it's been a weird decade, but I think uh, looking back on it, we're going to remember the good parts more than the bad. Yep, we can definitely even know that we had to endure the muck of the Senators on the ice. We definitely didn't have to endure it off the ice because you know a number of podcasts started up at that time, including Third Line Plug. <laughs> yeah, I'll drink to that. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I hope you enjoyed it because believe me, Tim and I love recording that for you you can find us on the national podcast network you can find our page on nationalpodcast.network we can find our page and our links to itunes soundcloud and google play we're also on twitter at third line plug is our twitter handle tim is at m901 honey badger and i'm at great white gipster gr8 w-a-t-e gipster if you want to choose an email to talk about today's episode for the top five greatest ottawa senators of the 2010s choose an email third line plug at gmail.com so, Tim, we really haven't had any discussion on 
when we're coming back and what episode we're going to be doing. And, I mean, really, we haven't really come up to any conclusion on what's going to be happening next. So I guess the best way we could probably do that is for other people who follow us on social media and we'll make the announcement. Yep. And not going to lie and pull back the K-Pape a bit, we have had some ideas. It's true. It's just, do we want to keep it for the summer or do we want to fast forward to now? Well, we might as well do a few. Until next time, guys. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. And this has been Tim Jensen. Go Sounds, guys. <laughs>